Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. If there's nothing else that anybody listens to in this podcast, is this. If you do not agree with or you do not understand an award that you've received or denial that you've received, appeal FEMA. Don't take no for an answer. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back again. It's Will. And Neil, what's happening, my man? Good Friday to you. Well, not yeah. actually Good Friday, but, you know. TGIF, I guess. Always a good Friday. You got any app news for me this week? I'll just touch up upon again the World Worldwide. Chicken Festival. We're going to highlight it again. Yesterday was the kickoff to the World Chicken Festival in London, KY. You got an opportunity to talk and people listening. Why would you not talk about the World Chicken Festival? Is my first thought, Will. I mean, any chance we get to talk about the World Chicken Festival, you know. I'm going to bring it. Well, let me ask you this. Are you going? Well, Will, we'll just have to see, won't we? Our <laughs> listeners are going to have to uh, have to wait till next week to know the outcome of that. Never know what goes on in the big town of London. And uh, opportunities come and they go, and you just don't know. Please. But if you're around London and you've never been to the Chicken Festival, you need to pop in. Check it out. There'll be 100,000 people there. You know what was last week? We should have had him on the show today. Last last night at the World Chicken Festival was the Colonel Sanders lookalike. Yep, yep. Should have had the winner on today. Uh, didn't get an opportunity to, to get with him. He had a lot of contacts after winning the competition, and it just didn't work out. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. I hope so. Healing Appalachia. Healing Appalachia also kicks off today. The big concert that we talked about last week. Healing Appalachia in Lewisburg, yep. West Virginia at the fairgrounds. Big weekend up there, Will. Like we said previously, if you don't make it to the Chicken Festival, then Healing Appalachia is definitely a place to be this weekend. So I'm looking forward to hearing great stories from that. Yes, sir. Tyler Childers, Margot Price, all the above. Check it out. Check their website out. Another festival I wanted to highlight this week. Feels like there's a lot of festivals going on right now. I guess in Appalachia, festivals are kind of a year-round thing, but a lot of them in the fall. But this is the Mini Mountains Fall Festival. It's a collaboration between the Appalachian Center and Appalachian Studies Program at the University of Kentucky, as well as the Department of Hispanic Studies, the Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino Studies Program at the University of Kentucky. And it's really to kick off Hispanic Heritage or Latin Heritage Month which runs from September 15th to October 15th. It just kicked off this week. And this Mini Mountains Fall Festival 
is really a student-planned week-long celebration of Appalachian and Latinx cultures. It includes art, music, food, and dance. It celebrates Appalachian cultural diversity with a special emphasis on Latinx experiences and expressions in the region. Um, it has everything from a Spanish spelling bee to pick up soccer games to salsa dancing workshop. It has a soup, beans, and spice Appalachian Latinx foodways workshop, which has got to be excellent. A lot of music, including the Molina Brothers, amongst others. I know this week they're having the cornbread and tortilla, which is a dynamic uh, bilingual production that features stories, music, and dancing. So this is a pretty cool event going on at the University of Kentucky and several other locations. If you're in and around that area, definitely check it out. It's going to be going on from, I think it started this week. It's going to be going all up until October 7th. Those are just some things going on around Appalachia, and I'm sure there's others. So um, we just don't know about everything. But, you know, as long as you're listening, we're, we're feeding you. We're plugging Appalachia. So check those things out. Speaking of Appalachia and things going on around us, you know, we've talked about it for several weeks now, Will, but obviously had national disaster here in eastern Kentucky. People are working hard to rebuild the region, and we continue to talk about that fight and that direction that we're, that we're headed. And there's all kinds of resources out there for people to tap into. So today we're just going to highlight another one of those resources. You know, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, this week's episode is kind of a follow-up to the flood relief efforts and what's going on over there. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we spoke, of, but we spoke a little bit about it last week, but there's a lot of myths and misconceptions in regards to FEMA and getting access to FEMA, getting access to the funds at FEMA, how people go about doing it, what they need to do, how they need to do it, how they can actually get funds when they are eligible even if they don't know they're eligible. And we have, a, we have an organization on today that's going to dispel a lot of those misconceptions and really let people know about the FEMA process, about what's going on in regards to flood relief in eastern Kentucky and what they're doing going forward. Yeah, you know, organizations are, are set up all over America to help people and help, help needs. FEMA is one that when you hear news about them, it's usually a you know, some type of conflicting news that doesn't necessarily represent exactly what happens. So I'm not saying that they don't make mistakes, but they also do a lot of good. And I'm looking forward to conversations tonight uh, to learn a little bit more about other avenues to to go about rebuilding our region. Absolutely. And since this is follow up episode, you just want to keep this intro short and just get right into it. Absolutely. Let's do it. I, I can't wait. I got questions. All right. Let's get Claire on here. today's episode, we have a special guest, a special organization. They're called SBP. It was founded in March of 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. It was originally called St. Bernard's Parish to help disaster-impacted communities achieve recovery goals. It's now recognized as a leader in disaster resilience and recovery with a mission to shrink the time between disaster and recovery. And 
as I said, it has rebranded into SBP because it's now a national organization helping communities all throughout the country. And today we have from that organization, Claire Balsley, Director of Disaster Assistance Programs for SBP. Claire, we want to thank you for being on the program and thank you for taking the time today. Thank you both for having me. This is an honor. I, I don't know about an honor, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we appreciate it. <laughs> we wanted to ask you, like we ask all our guests, you're not from the area, but in Appalachia, you know, we're big on traditions. And one of those traditions, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this gigantic spread of appetizers, usually more than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Mm, any holiday dish? Any, yeah, any mm. holiday. Uh, okay, so... Not really an appetizer. My family's never been big on the appetizers unless it's like cocktail hour with the brie and the cheese and the fruits. But Thanksgiving would probably be my favorite holiday. Most of my family is not big on turkey, which I think is sacrilege. Um, I under I understand you guys like ham more than we turkey. A, yeah, we got a ham fan in the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand that if turkey's not involved in Thanksgiving, it's not Thanksgiving to me. So that's my key staple. Now that we have that question out of the way, I gave a brief description of SBP, but can you just give a little bit of more background and let the listeners know exactly what your organization is, who you are, what you do, where you work? Absolutely. So SBP is a disaster recovery organization. It initially started off to help individuals who were overlooked, marginalized communities. Its initial mission, I guess, is one in which they were trying to rebuild homes and bring people back into their homes as quickly as possible. Since then, our organization has expanded to a number of different wings, for lack of a better term. We have an advocacy wing where we advocate on behalf of the survivors. That is where my program resides with the disaster assistance. We have an advise wing that really helps advise local, federal, and uh, state government officials on how to best assist survivors. We have a prepared wing to really get survivors prepared for disasters as we're noticing disasters are becoming more and more and more common as the years progress. And these disasters are becoming not only more widespread, but the damage is even greater in a lot of these disasters. We have a rebuild program and that is in rebuilding homes and we have a share program. And this share program really helps other nonprofit organizations in their efforts to assist survivors. Through that SHARE program, we're transferring all the knowledge that we've received throughout these years and passing it on to other nonprofit organizations. Not only knowledge, but funding. My program, the Disaster Assistance Program, started about two years ago. Well, the thought began about two years ago when we read a Washington Post article. And in it, there was an investigative journalist who discovered that between the years 2017 and 2020, on average, only 13% of survivors who applied for FEMA assistance received any type of award. Oh, wow. 13%. Of 
everyone who who applied for FEMA assistance at the time, only 3% appealed. Now that number is 4%. It was such a shocking number to us. We knew we had to do something. So our program initially started as a FEMA appeals program to assist survivors in that appeals process. It's a tricky, tricky process. And as most people in East Kentucky know, with the back-to-back floods that have occurred, everyone's facing the fact that it could happen to them if it hasn't already. Those who have been affected are most likely displaced from their homes, have lost so much. I'm certain most everyone in the region where the floods have occurred have um, experienced a loss, whether that was direct or indirect. So all that stress, that worry, that sadness compounded with the need to reach out to FEMA on a daily basis, almost, to try to get this appeals process uh, going is a lot. It's sometimes way too much. And so we, with SBP, wanted to alleviate additional burden that's already placed on the shoulders of survivors and help them through that appeals process. We've been quite successful, if I can state. We started our program in Louisiana with Hurricane Ida, which um, hit land August of last year. We continued our program through to the Kentucky tornadoes. And then as soon as the Kentucky floods occurred, we moved into East Kentucky. And I'll give you some numbers. To date, we've assisted at 220 survivors. Some are still in process. And of those 220 survivors, we have helped them access $1.1 million in additional funds from FEMA. The denial letters or the under award letters that FEMA sends is obviously not because the survivors aren't eligible for award monies. There are award monies there for them. Generally, an immediate denial or an award that's really low is indicative of something that, you know, wasn't filled out correctly on the application or missing piece, such as FEMA wasn't able to confirm that you own your house or that you occupied your house, or they couldn't confirm your identity. If it's a low award, it might just be that The inspector who inspected the home might have lacked knowledge. We need to prove then to FEMA through line item estimates through a local contractor that that FEMA inspector who initially came out to the home was incorrect in their assessment. Um, FEMA views determination letters as conversation starters. And so if there's nothing else that anybody listens to in this podcast is this, if you do not agree with or you do not understand an award that you've received or denial that you've received, appeal FEMA. Don't take no for an answer. I mean, appeal. And if you receive an appeal award and you still don't agree with that or you still don't think it's sufficient, appeal again. You have up to 18 months from the date of the disaster to appeal awards. There is a window for applications. That window is coming up, I think the end of September. That doesn't mean it's the end of the road with FEMA. That's just for applications. So if anyone was affected by the floods, we really want them to apply to FEMA to get that FEMA registration number. Once they have that FEMA registration number, they can appeal and continue to appeal throughout the end of 23. 
That's a great point. And this this is advice that can be used throughout the region, correct? I know there's been floods in West Virginia, obviously in Kentucky, but all throughout the region, there's been disasters and they can take this advice and use it everywhere, correct? Yeah, for any disaster, whether it's now with these floods or in the future, this information has to be, I mean, is used for FEMA individual assistance declared counties. I'd need to research if West Virginia had what's called, you know, they they use individual assistance. They make it an acronym of IA. So if FEMA has an IA declaration, which you could even go on FEMA's website to see, then you're good to appeal and apply. Generally what happens on uh, FEMA's website, disasterassistance.gov, you'll put in what disaster you were affected by and what county you're in. And that will let you know whether or not that county qualifies for FEMA assistance on the individual level. That's great. I, obviously, you know, I wanted to speak for the whole region, but obviously we, we had you on talk about the floods in Eastern Kentucky and the work that you're doing there. And one of the th- upcoming things that you have October 4th through October 7th, you're having what you call a regional recovery acceleration week. And I know you're partnering with the Kentucky River Area Development District there in Eastern Kentucky. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing during that week, the 4th through the 7th, and and what plans you have for the region? Absolutely. We are so grateful to be partnering with the Kentucky River Area Development District, CRAD, in Hazard. They've been fantastic in assisting us in the opportunity to train and advise numerous key players within the disaster recovery realm from the counties in which the floods affected Kentucky. So on October 4th, which is a Tuesday, we will be talking to local, state, and hopefully federal leaders on disaster needs assessments and social vulnerability. We have an expert from North Carolina who really delves into social vulnerability and disaster needs and has come up with a slew of data, which is really important for local, state, and federal leaders to understand how to best assist survivors, not only in the short term, but in the long-term recovery. One of the things that we really want to push is additional monies that will come from housing and urban development later on down the line, which would be solely focused on long-term recovery for each community. And so this training, these there's two training sessions on that Tuesday. With our you know, years of experience, we want to advise leaders on how to best allocate these funds to directly affect the speedy recovery for not only the community, but individual survivors as well. That's Tuesday. Then on the 5th and the 6th, Wednesday and Thursday, we have a disaster case management training course, very in-depth, very involved. This has been a um, well-thought-out training and it's been executed in a number of different states. Really helps equip individuals who want to be disaster case managers in that process, mostly with home rebuilds and home repair, getting people back into homes. Then on Friday, October 7th, the days split up into three different areas. 
I will be teaching FEMA appeals and application processes to any practitioner, any individual who wants to assist others in that appeals process. We call it a train the trainer course. That'll be about four hours maximum. Additionally, we're going to have our SHARE program leader, I spoke about SHARE earlier, that helps provide knowledge to other NGOs. And we'll talk about all the offerings that we have available. And then we have a great expert in preparedness, and she will discuss how to prepare for future flood disasters. It's going to be a great week and it's in hazard at the CRAD building. We're again, very grateful for everyone who has been involved in helping us do this training. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned everyone that's involved in those partnerships because as you know, or may not know the culture in Appalachia, we tend to view outsiders a little differently. Sometimes they're not well received in the beginning. We have a culture where we like to get to know people a little bit better. And I know that you already had, or SVP, already had connections in the region and aren't necessarily considered outsiders when you're doing this work. But are you familiar with the culture and do you understand that dynamic when you're going into a situation such as this? Yeah. So I've been in Appalachia a few times since the floods and I never felt like I was an outsider. I was always just warmly enveloped. I can understand that perspective of, Hey, not sure if I want to trust you right here. It's a protective quality and it's completely understandable. I mean, Appalachia is so beautiful and most places are remote and it's a wild beauty uh, with the nature. And so um, having that sense of protection is key, I think. But we were assisting last year with the floods and we're able to create some partnerships such as with um, the Housing Development Alliance, HDA uh, in Hazard, with Homes Inc., in Whitesburg, with Foundation Appalachia, with a slew of other organizations. They also have been vital in our ability to assist survivors. We've since been invited back from the governor's office to train and assist survivors at the state-run camps for the trailers for individuals who've been displaced from their homes. Those camp areas have very poor Wi-Fi and cell service right now. Um, And so having someone to be able to go in and explain the FEMA process in a way that's understandable has been really important. In speaking of HDA and homes, my team and I have partnered with them. So with an appeals process, if you own your home, Uh, It often involves contractor estimates. I have a few things to state about this. So it often involves contractor estimates. We at SVP are grant funded. We receive funding from partners like Walmart, Toyota, Musk Foundation. They have allocated funds for us to be able to pay for contractors to do estimates on survivors' homes that we are assisting through the appeals process. So we've partnered with HDA and with Homes Inc. And they are doing appeal or the um, contractor estimates for us as part of the appeals. And this alleviates additional burden off the survivor of 
A, finding a contractor and B, being able to pay for a contractor. Now, there are some survivors who have received award letters from FEMA and for home repair, they're given $179. That's it. That's all it states inside the letter is you've received $179 for the repair or replacement of your home. The survivor might look at that and think, oh my gosh, well then now this is the end of the road. What am I supposed to do with this? What FEMA has not disclosed, although if you go to any disaster recovery center or speak to any FEMA representative, they will explain, is this $179 should be allocated towards contractor estimates. And so if this has happened to anyone listening, don't feel like it's the end. You can use those funds towards contractor estimates, or if we assist you with your appeals, use those funds towards the remainder award amount you'll receive to repair or replace your home. Additionally, if you receive initial award amount and you want to appeal, I want to make it abundantly clear that if you appeal FEMA, the money you've currently received will be in no way affected. It's not like they could take it back, right? The money you've received, start using to repair your home, rebuild your home, or replace your home if it's been uh, completely destroyed, or repair or replace your personal property. You don't need to wait. Keep all receipts. Keep all receipts forever and ever. I can't state that firmly enough. Keep all receipts. FEMA could potentially down the line, come and audit you and see how you've utilized these funds. So having receipts, especially if you can take pictures of them and put them on a cloud-based platform, can then prove to FEMA that you use the funds in the ways that FEMA wanted you to use them. Now you could receive home repair funds or personal property funds. With that money, what FEMA doesn't want you to do is buy ATVs, buy big screen TVs. You know, they want you to use these funds to bring your home back to a safe, sanitary, and functional condition. That makes sense. I know we spoke briefly earlier. We talked about the disaster and the extent of the disaster in Eastern Kentucky and how it might compare to some of the other disasters that you've either worked in or have seen. I mentioned that SPP really got started because of Hurricane Katrina and the disaster that was there. We all recognize that New Orleans is a metropolitan area, whereas Eastern Kentucky is very rural. While it is small and rural, it also had a major problem with housing even before the floods occurred. So can you just talk a little bit about the comparison in regards to the disaster you saw in Eastern Kentucky and some of the other disasters, especially after Hurricane Katrina? Yeah, absolutely. So my life in the disaster recovery world isn't as long as 15 years to be able to compare it to Katrina. However, I've spoken to a number of individuals who have been in the disaster recovery world since that time, and they say that they haven't seen such destruction since Katrina. That's saying a lot. When you drive down 476 from Jackson to Bulin, it's heartbreaking seeing the extent of damage there. There are other roads I can't name off the top of my head because I just I just drive them. We there's, refer to them as haulers, Claire. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, I do know that. If you drive down the haulers, there's nothing you can compare it to. The damage is unreal. 
And the stories, the survivor stories are miraculous to say the least, or, you know, just harrowing. So everything that, that everyone in Appalachia has gone through within this period of time between, you know, one o'clock in the morning and four o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning until they were rescued is unimaginable. And seeing the leftover destruction from that almost, you know, it brings tears to your eyes. What's interesting with the flood disaster is that you can drive through the mountains and not see any remnants of destruction until you hit a certain holler and start driving down that and just see widespread destruction. That's something that's very interesting to me. If you go into West Kentucky with the tornadoes, first of all, West Kentucky is a lot more flat, but you can just see massive destruction all throughout different cities. And, and because of the, the way the mountains roll and making turns and so many trees available, you know, like it's first, can I just state interject here? I've been to many countries around the world. And as I was driving through Appalachia, I kept on wanting to stop the car and take pictures because it's so beautiful over there. So yeah, destruction is, is widespread, especially in certain haulers and the need for assistance is great. Again, comparisons, you can only compare so much, but um, I can definitely state there was massive destruction and many lives were affected in these floods. And it's our hope and goal to, like you stated, Will, speed up the time, shrink the time between disaster and recovery. We want people back into homes. One of the things that we're really advocating for and I know it might be a hard thing to hear is in many of these, many of these haulers, there are floodplains, the FEMA flood zone maps are not up to date. Rains will continue to come. The potential of future floods is great. If it's at all possible to move from your current location to higher ground, that is what we recommend the most. How does FEMA view that? If you want to relocate, obviously, outside of the floodplain, your house was totally destroyed, you're getting money from FEMA, you're getting money from insurance. Can you rebuild elsewhere? Absolutely. Yeah. So FEMA's housing assistance monies, which for the floods, you can receive a maximum grant of $37,900. Not a lot, but you know it's better than nothing. You can apply that towards the repair or the replacement of your home. It doesn't mean that the replacement has to be on that exact property. You can replace your home on a different property. They just want you to be in a safe space. And another reason why we're advocating to move out of flood zones is because of the requirement of flood insurance for most individuals who are identified as being within flood zone A, something that FEMA will go ahead and send a letter uh, and inform a survivor that they are within flood zone A. Now, again, want to make it really clear that on FEMA determination letters, usually about page two or three, there's some, some fine print. And it says something to the effect of, if you have been identified as being within a flood zone, you will be required to obtain and maintain flood insurance. If you do not agree with this, you have up to 30 days to return 
the funds to FEMA. I honestly don't know why that's in there. It's completely inaccurate in the ways in which FEMA deals with flood insurance. So just disregard that verbiage in the fine print on the declaration letter. What actually happens is if FEMA identifies you as being within flood zone A, they will send you a letter. Now, a lot of survivors don't have mailboxes right now. If their homes were completely destroyed, I highly urge all survivors to keep FEMA up to date with their latest mailing address because FEMA will be mailing documents. And this flood zone document would be one you don't want to miss. Additionally, there's a lot of survivors who don't have bank accounts and FEMA will send physical checks. So make sure to constantly update FEMA with your up-to-date and current mailing address. But FEMA will mail a letter stating, you are in flood zone A, we are now requiring you to obtain and maintain flood insurance for the life of the property. So if you move from that property later on, it's your responsibility to disclose to the buyers that insurance is required on this property. Um, it do, this flood insurance doesn't stay with the individual, it stays with the property. Also, I've heard stories of people going in purchasing homes and the sellers have not disclosed that flood insurance was a requirement. And these new homeowners applied to FEMA in this disaster. And FEMA says, no, you are required to get flood insurance. And so they're not being helped. So backtracking again, you get a letter, you're told you are in flood zone A, you're told you need to get obtain and maintain. That's their keywords, flood insurance. What's likely going to happen is FEMA is also going to provide up to three years of flood insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program, NFIP. That'll be free flood insurance. And then from that up to third year of free flood insurance forward is your responsibility to maintain flood insurance. If you don't have flood insurance and another flood disaster occurs, then FEMA will not provide any assistance. So there are a number of individuals I know in Eastern Kentucky that did not have flood insurance through this. So if you're not getting any money through FEMA, you're not getting any money through your flood insurance, what, what do you do? I mean, there, there's temporary housing currently. I already mentioned the housing problem that was before the flood. What do we do going forward? How are those people going to be helped? I mean, they're in need as well. Where do they go? What do we do? Yeah. So if you didn't have flood insurance and you'd never received a letter from FEMA before stating you need flood insurance, if you have not received flood insurance, FEMA will help you. I'll get to the remainder of your question in just a second. Uh, you, you sparked something in my mind. I just want to make abundantly clear is that if FEMA tells you, you need flood insurance from here on out, you do not need to give the FEMA award monies you've received from, from this disaster back to FEMA. You keep those monies and you use them for the repair or replacement of your home and personal property. So let's say a survivor in the last floods last year received a letter from FEMA stating, Hey, we now require you to get flood insurance. Flood insurance is not cheap. They couldn't afford it. So they didn't get flood insurance. And then they were affected by these floods. You're correct. FEMA is not going to provide assistance in this flood disaster. They can receive the $500 critical needs money. That's when you apply for FEMA assistance, they'll give you a $500 check. But this is when we have to be heavily reliant on 
community organizations and volunteer organizations. There are great organizations out there. Even Foundation Appalachia is a really great resource. Housing Development Alliance, Samaritan's Purse, the Mennonites. One thing I recommend a lot of survivors do is call 211. Dial 211. You'll be connected to your local United Way. Tell them your situation and they can direct you towards amazing resources within the community. Me in California, if I call 211, I'll get someone here in California and I'll get, you know, United Way here in California and resources. So I can't call on the behalf of a survivor. A survivor within each space they live will have to call 211 on their own to get local resources and be directed to a local United Way. But that community support and volunteers is where you should be most heavily reliant. Now, there is another potential option, but that's based off of ability to have a loan. You could go the route of a of the small business administration. FEMA and the SBA have partnered up in some instances for personal property, FEMA will require certain survivors to apply for the SBA or apply to the SBA for a loan. Whether the SBA approves the survivor for a loan or not is a different story, but that will then trigger, if a survivor is denied a loan, that will then trigger FEMA to provide personal property assistance monies or transportation money. Uh, the SBA can provide a loan of up to $200,000 for the repair or replacement of your home. It's generally low interest loans at long-term fixed rates. I'm hearing anywhere between 2.18% interest to 4% interest at 30-year fixed terms. In tradition of uh, what we always ask our guest, uh, one of the questions we always ask, and I'm interested to hear your your take on it, uh, not being someone that has necessarily visited the area uh, very often. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Appalachia? Beauty. Beauty. Mm-hmm. I thought you might say that. I know you spoke of the beauty earlier <laughs> just in being here, but it's always interesting for us to hear what I guess you would be considered an outsider thinks of the, of the region just based on the word. So. Very good. Yeah, it's not even just the beauty of the landscape. It's the beauty of the people. I mean, hearts of gold is is what I've seen and kind heartedness and compassion and concern for your neighbor. Obviously, there are outliers, but that's the majority of what I've seen. Again, even though I am an outsider, every time I step into Appalachia, I've been warmly enveloped by everyone there. And that's a true testament of who everyone is. So basically what I hear you saying is you wake up every day in California wishing you lived in Appalachia. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We we always like to follow that question up with another question that we ask all our guests. Place and perspective are really important to our podcast, really important to us. Place really matters in Appalachia. So we wanted to ask you just where you call home, what makes it home for you, what makes it unique for you? Yeah, because I so I stated that I've been to a number of different countries. I've never lived in one spot for longer than six years. Home, I think, is the whole world. That's what I view. I view 
this earth as my home and wherever I am, I can make it home. That's what I love about the world is we're all different. We all come from bit different backgrounds, different viewpoints, different foods, different music, uh, different clothing styles, but we're all the same and we're all here for each other. And that's what I love. I can go anywhere in the world and feel perfectly content and at home, just like in Appalachia. That's a really good answer. Have you, have you ever lived in Appalachia, Claire? No, I have not. I can, I can hear I the mom calling. Six He's... years is almost up, I would imagine. <laughs> That's right. Neil and I always say there's a little magic in the mountains. Once, once you have experienced it, uh, they, they keep pulling you back. I'm actually, I mean, I am, I'm coming back here in October. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Might keep me that time. We want, we did want to ask you what Neil and I or anybody, what we can do. Obviously there are a lot of ways to monetarily donate currently, but in regards to housing, in regards to helping the individuals that are in need, what, what can we do in the immediate term? What can we do in the long term to help rebuild the communities there in Eastern Kentucky. What's some resources we can we you can provide maybe that we can reach out to, whether it be monetarily, whether it be physically, if we want to volunteer. Are there any ways that we can help out? Yeah. Again, I, I'm gonna throw out a few local uh, organizations that I think are fantastic. You know, HDA, Homes Inc. Foundation. Appalachia, reach out to them. I know Foundation Appalachia has been receiving a lot of money to be able to assist survivors in the long term. They're a great group. Um, if you go on SBP's website, which is sbpusa.org, there's donation buttons there that can directly assist survivors in Appalachia. If you want to get your hands down and dirty, nitty gritty, helping with mucking and gutting and, you know, debris removal, again, the local resources, or even call 211 and say, hey, I'm here to help. There was a crisis cleanup organization that coordinated all of that previously. They have since deferred to 211. So definitely recommend that. And if there's anyone who needs appeals assistance, they can call us. We have a toll-free number, which is 1-800-276-9511, or they can email us at femahelp at sbpusa.org, and we can help in that appeals process. But definitely volunteering at the local level is probably one of the things that we most encourage, or donating at the local level is something that we most encourage those who want to help. Based on your experience with other disasters or disasters in general, how long is the rebuilding process going to take in Eastern Kentucky? You know, we've talked about it. It's not just an overnight thing. It's going to take years, but we really don't know when we say that. Just from your experience, how long do you think the rebuilding process will take? This isn't a number you guys want to hear, but about eight years. Yeah. Disaster recovery is a really slow process, very slow process. That's why preparedness is key. Every dollar that you put into preparing for a disaster will save you anywhere between five to $11 after a disaster. Preparing for a disaster in certain ways 
especially with the floods of moving out of flood zones or elevating your home will help in that recovery, that future recovery. Yeah. Eight years is a unfortunate amount of time to have to recover, but that's on average how long it takes a community to get back to that pre-disaster state. Yeah, wow. And and we we say on every episode, we're going to continue to talk about this because even though, um, you know, it's out of the spotlight, the ca- all the cameras are gone now, there's still an incredible amount of need for the mountains. And uh, we'll continue to talk about it. We'll continue to try to spread the word and, and ask people to help out in any way they can. Which is great. And I echo all of that. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for being part of the episode today. And for all the work that you do, for all the work that SPB USA does, and for all the immediate and future work you're going to be doing in Eastern Kentucky. Thank you, Will and Neil. This has been fantastic. And I really hope that together we can help everyone in Appalachia get back on their road to recovery a lot quicker than they otherwise would. Thanks so much. And Claire bringing the facts tonight. I uh, really enjoyed our conversation. I'm very appreciative of her coming on talking about SBP uh, disaster relief. You know, I know she's usually following up a disaster everywhere she goes in the world is after something bad has happened. But I got to think it's kind of kind of got to be cool for her on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. You know, she's she's helping people all over. Yeah, I'm glad she could shed some light on kind of kind of the inside scoop on the FEMA process on you know what SPP does. They're they're a really great organization that partners with a lot of communities that have gone like she, like she mentioned marginalized communities or underserved communities that have gone through a disaster. SPP have been doing a lot of great things, a lot of great work partnering with people around the country. And Eastern Kentucky is just one of those places. Will, were you shocked by anything that Claire had to say? One of the things that I, I was shocked by when she was talking about FEMA and that originally only 11% of people actually got access to, to funding, but that really shocked me. But also the fact that a majority of the people get, I think she said $179 and they think that that's all they're getting or, or they, they get a rejection letter and they don't know that they can appeal. You know, Will, I was shocked with when we asked her the question about <clears throat> comparing disasters. I live in eastern Kentucky, as you know, and hopefully our listeners have heard me reference before. I am an hour and a half removed from what happened here in Kentucky. And, you know, unless you see it, you can't really, I guess, wrap your mind around what actually happened. And when we asked her that question about compare this to other disasters, and even though she didn't have a firsthand look at Katrina, she made the comment that some coworkers had told her that this disaster was comparable to Katrina. Like I said, I'm an hour and a half away. I've not got boots on the ground myself. But when she said that, that just kind of blew me away. Like, oh, my gosh. So it just made me even more intrigued with offering a helping hand uh, to those affected in this region. So I can't imagine what they're going through. And I'm just grateful that we are trying to provide a bunch of different avenues and trying to educate people on how they can help the region. 
Yeah, and we talked about on the last few episodes, you know, this is not an overnight thing. It's going to be long term. And I'm glad that SPB is there going into Eastern Kentucky to help expedite the process, making the long term a little bit shorter in regards to rebuild. Yeah, Claire mentioned eight years, Will. 2030, you're looking at. We'll still be talking about this flood in 2022. So hopefully SBP can can help speed that process along. I'm grateful to Claire for coming on tonight and sharing her wisdom with us. Uh, There is hope in Eastern Kentucky, and uh, there always will be. So I I appreciate everybody that's been over there working and doing great things, and and will continue to. Do you have an at biz of the week for me, Will? This week I do. You know, we don't often go with a nonprofit, but this week I felt it apropos to go with an organization that has been around a while in Eastern Kentucky. Claire mentioned them a few times on the episode, but I think we should highlight them today for this episode in regards to the app biz of the week. And that is the Housing Development Alliance or what commonly people refer to as HDA. Back in the 90s, it was actually started by a group of women who went out of their way in Hazard Perry County. They originally formed as the Hazard Perry County Community Ministries. These women got together and they funded a daycare program, a homeless shelter, and a crisis aid program. That was in the 1990s. I think Jerry Roll was one of those original members of that group. Jerry Roll is now the president or CEO of the Foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky. But this group did a lot of things in the 90s until eventually it led into the mission that it has today to use the power of housing to transform lives and build a brighter future for our communities. So their ultimate goal is to help in Eastern Kentucky rebuild homes. So they get their hands dirty and they build affordable homes. Even before the crisis, they were doing this in Eastern Kentucky, and now they're more important than ever helping to, I think you heard Claire refer to them, of all their efforts, all the things they're doing in Eastern Kentucky. You can reach out to them directly at their website, hdahome.org. They have their contact information. You can also donate directly in regards to the flood efforts on their website, to help give to them, but also give to the people of Eastern Kentucky to help rebuild homes. Well said, well, well said. Don't forget uh, Claire's website that she mentioned. Uh, if you're looking for help out there as well, sbpusa.org. And again, very appreciative for her time. And uh, hopefully you guys out there in the listening world find this episode very helpful. Yeah, definitely. A lot of resources. And we want to thank Claire again for being on the episode. But we especially want to thank SBP for the work that they do, work that they're doing in Eastern Kentucky, and work that they will continue to do to combat the disasters across the country. I guess we can end it, Neil, like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains